Well, this morning, I want you to open with me to Luke chapter 13. Luke 13, we want to see a message, a message that God has for us right now during the coronavirus. What, what kind of message does God have for the world in a time like this? You know, today is called Palm Sunday, and uh, it's the day that Jesus came into Jerusalem on his final journey. And it's a week before his resurrection, just a few days before the cross. And when he rides in, yes, there's great celebration from his disciples. There's a, there's a great rejoicing. They're calling out to him. They're singing, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. But also when he comes into the city, there's a warning. There's a warning on Palm Sunday. There's a warning to the city of Jerusalem that they're going to be destroyed, that there is a disaster coming upon them one day. One day soon, a few years after uh, Jesus' death and resurrection, the city will be destroyed. And he's warning them and he's crying. He's, he's actually weeping over the city. Well, this Palm Sunday, I think Jesus has a warning for us. During this time of a, a disaster in many places uh, for many reasons, uh, Jesus has a warning for us. And it's seen right here in Luke 13, 1 through 9. I want to read the passage to you. Luke 13. Now on the same occasion, there were some present who reported to him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. And Jesus said to them, Do not suppose that these Galileans were greater sinners than all other Galileans because they suffered this fate? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or do you suppose that those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them were worse culprits than all the men who live in Jerusalem? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And he began telling this parable. A man had a fig tree which had been planted in his vineyard. And he came looking for fruit on it and did not find any. And he said to the vineyard keeper, Behold, for three years I've come looking for fruit on this fig tree without finding any. Cut it down. Why does it even use up the ground? And he answered and said to him, Let it alone, sir, for this year too, until I dig around it and put in fertilizer. And if it bears fruit next year, fine. But if not, cut it down. Well, death is in the news quite a bit today. Uh, death is in the news as of this morning. 65,711 deaths have been attributed to the coronavirus. Many more are expected this week, especially in the U.S. It's uh, expected to be so serious, the president has warned uh, it's going to be a rough week, he said. And there will be death. That was his short version of it. There will be death, he said. Well, what would Jesus say to us? What would Jesus say to us here in this area, in, in the United States even, or in the world? Because every country is struggling with this now or soon will be. But what would he say to us as the death count rises around the world? As Christians search for answers in the scripture and even unbelievers are looking, they're tuning in. I think our, our live stream service is getting two or three times the viewers that we normally have in our service. Well, many have tried to answer this. What's God's message for us? Why is this happening? Uh, N.T. Wright, a very well-liked by many, and he's a prominent Bible scholar, recently wrote a uh, Time magazine article last week. And this was his title. Christianity offers no answers about the coronavirus. It's not supposed to. It's not supposed to. Now, many have responded and corrected uh, this esteemed scholar, but uh, he basically goes on in the article to say God doesn't have a message for us in this time and we're not to expect that we could even understand what God is doing right now. Well, there is a message. There is a message. God has many reasons he does things. We don't know all of them, but we do know based on what Jesus says here that death, that disaster, whether it's by men's hand or whether it's by a natural disaster, which is often what we're experiencing today. There is a message. And so Jesus is teaching the crowds, he's teaching his disciples, that indeed there's something we ought to learn from this. Now the context here is that Jesus is on his final journey to Jerusalem. This is before 
he enters the city. He does that in Luke 19 for Passion Week, but this is Luke 13, and he's on his way. He makes a very long journey in the Gospel of Luke. Luke records all the various places that Jesus goes and what he's teaching. But he's preparing his disciples for when he's gone. He's telling them how to live. And he's also evangelizing the crowds because Jesus has his followers, his disciples. And then the crowds are always flocking around him. And they're wanting to hear a message from the teacher of the Bible, from the rabbi. Well, he's going to teach them about the news. He's going to say, these things happen in the news that you're bringing me. These things have happened for a reason. And he's going to tell them, that they need to turn from their sin and turn to God. It's not about the people who've already died. It's about those who are left here. You can't do anything about those who've already died. You, if you're still alive today, you can do something about your own coming death and about your own eternal life. The first thing Jesus tells them, if you're taking notes, point number one, Jesus says, repent now. Repent now because of eternal suffering. It's worse than death. Repent now because eternal suffering is worse than death. It is. That's the first message. He is saying that God has a message for you. When people die, when something bad happens, what's, what are we supposed to think? Repent now. Repent now. Ourselves in our own heart. Turn to Christ and repent now because eternal suffering is worse than death. Hell Eternal suffering, eternal judgment. It's worse than anything that could happen right now in this life. As bad as things are now, as bad as things have been in the past in history, as bad as things will be in the, in the tribulation described in the book of Revelation, nothing is as bad as eternal judgment, eternal hell. The most gruesome death, the most tragic death, the, the saddest kind of death we could imagine today is nothing compared to What's going to happen in the next life for those who don't repent? That's the point he's trying to make here. So Jesus is teaching the crowds, and and some men come up to him, and they they almost kind of want to see if they can challenge him with some news, or or maybe verify their own views. They, They want Jesus to verify what they're already thinking, what every Jew would have thought in that day. And so it says they report to him in verse 1 about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. They're just giving him some news. How are you going to respond to this, Jesus? What, what do you think about this? Now, Pilate, the governor, the Roman governor of Palestine at this time, where all the, the Jews, uh, most of the Jews live, where Jesus is doing his ministry. Pilate rules over this place, and he was known in history for some horrible massacres. Uh, Josephus, the Jewish historian, records many of the massacres that Pilate did uh, upon the people of that land, the Jews, the, the Samaritans. Well, this one here is not mentioned anywhere in secular history, but it's mentioned in the history here in the Bible. And they, they had heard about Pilate just massacring some Galileans, uh, probably on the day of Passover, because that's when men would come down to Jerusalem, families would come down, and they would, they would sacrifice, and they would sacrifice, and, and the men would have to take the animal up to the, the door of the temple, the gate of the temple, and the, the priest would be there, and the man would have to go ahead and uh, sacrifice the animal right there. And there would be a lot of blood. And so here's this great day of celebration, one of the most holy days on the calendar of Israel. And they would have spent a large sum of money to go stay in Jerusalem, to buy a lamb. It wasn't cheap then to buy a lamb. And suddenly these Galileans who traveled so far to sacrifice on a holy day have been killed. They've been massacred. They've been killed by Pilate. Maybe, maybe Pilate thought there was a riot happening uh, at these sacrifices. Maybe he was concerned. Either way, he killed them. And it says here that their blood was mixed together with the sacrifices. It wasn't that Pilate was sacrificing the Galileans in the temple or anything like that. We would know uh, in many places if that was the case. But he likely killed them as they're doing these sacrifices. So the blood that would run out of the temple with the sacrifices also had human blood, also had Galilean blood. So suddenly they're killed, and they were doing what seemed like a good thing, what seemed like a righteous thing. And and people are killed, even when it appears they're doing something good. And so from this, a Jew in that day would have thought, what sinners, what kind of sinners are these men 
that even when they're serving God, even when they're sacrificing to God, they are killed. They must have had some hidden sin. They must have had some secret sin. Look how God has judged them. Now, we don't see a lot of this thinking today, but, but sometimes we do. I've seen recently where people have said, well, you know, China, they're communists, and, and they deserved this coronavirus when it started. Now, uh, when it came to the U.S., the East and West Coast were the first to have major outbreaks. And I even saw on social media where people were saying, look at these cities, look at the map here. It's on the East and it's on the West Coast. Well, they're getting paid back for their liberal beliefs, for their various sins. So the message is, look, God is punishing them for their sins. We don't know that. It could be the case, but we don't know that. That's in God's mind. But what we do know is we're not any better than even those liberals who could care less about God. Even people who are atheists, are we better than them? Are we not sinners too? Here in Jewish times, in ancient times, there's this idea of divine retribution, that bad things happen to bad people as a punishment. If you're a good person, not as much bad things will happen to you. But if you're sinful, if you're really hiding some secret sin, then God is going to punish you. That God is going to come at you in such a dramatic way that everybody will see it. We see Job's three friends say this. They tell him in Job 4, 7, Remember now, whoever punished, who was ever punished being innocent? Who was ever punished being innocent is the idea. So Job, you must have sinned. Paul, he, he's on the, uh, after the shipwreck, he's on the island of Malta. And he gets bitten by a poisonous viper. Surely he's going to die without a miraculous intervention, which God does uh, intervene and heal him. But the people see Paul bitten and it says, they say, undoubtedly, this man is a murderer in Acts 28. This man must be a murderer. And though he has been saved from the sea, justice, meaning God, justice has not allowed him to live. Well, in John 9, you might remember the man born blind from birth. And after his disciples asked Jesus, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he would be born blind? You know what Jesus says? It was neither this man that sinned nor his parents, but it was so that the works of God might be displayed in him. So sometimes God does punish people. And sometimes it's for a complete other reason that we cannot know. It's for the glory of God eventually. All things are. Sometimes people are punished in this life. Sometimes they're not. We can't know the mind of God enough to say specifically that person's being punished by God right now and that person's not. So what's the message then? If we can't know the mind of God, if we can't learn our lesson there, what's the message? Verse 2. Verse 2. Jesus said to them, Do you suppose that these Galileans were greater sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered this fate? Jesus is, is rebuking the pride that these men have that came to him. Our pride. Our pride to think, well, it's not going to happen to us. It won't happen to us because we're good. We're righteous. Those other people who are suffering right now, they must have done something wrong. Well, he's rebuking that. And he's saying, don't focus on them. Do, do you think those Galileans were any worse than these other Galileans today that are still alive? Do you think those that died by Pilate's hand were somehow more sinful? Aren't, aren't we all great sinners? Aren't we all every person except for Christ? Aren't we all great sinners? The word sinner here, uh, if you look up the word study on this, it's a word we throw around a lot, but it actually means a behavior or activity that does not measure up to God's moral standard. It, it doesn't hit the mark. It misses the mark was the way that the ancient Greeks used it. It misses the mark that God has set for humanity. It misses the mark, which is perfection. We are to be perfect. We are to be holy as God is holy. And when we sin, we, we miss the mark. We, we don't measure up. Any man, any woman, any child who, who forfeits a correct relationship to God by a bad attitude even, even a bad attitude, a bad thought, a wrong thought, a sinful thought, is a sin towards God. That's what makes us sinners. And the fact that something so horrible would happen to these Jewish people from Galilee, God's people, amazes them in ancient times. And it's, it's such an awful death to think about a, a pagan ruler 
as you're going up to sacrifice, killing you with the Roman soldiers with a sword. It's such a horrible way to die in their mindset. Well, they're not thinking correctly. They're not thinking correctly because they're thinking, look, we're better. We're we're better. Those men must have been great sinners. Now, the modern world today, as I said, often does not think like this. Sometimes we do when we don't like another area of the country or another part of the world. But the world today often thinks that no one's a sinner. And God's so loving, by the way, that he would never punish anyone with death or eternal punishment. Even, even many people who call themselves Christians would say, God's so loving. God loves us just the way we are. I, I can't think of God like that. I just can't. And so we push back against the idea that, that physical death would come upon us for any sin, even Adam's sin. And we push back against the idea of eternal death. Well, R.C. Sproul is probably one of his most famous statements he made uh, before he died. He was being interviewed in a conference that Ligonier did. And the question that was posed to the panel, which he was sitting on, said, if God is slow to anger and patient, then why is God's wrath and punishment so severe against mankind's sin? So after explaining for about a minute uh, how merciful God was to Adam and Eve by letting them live, how his grace would eventually save mankind, Dr. Sproul gets very upset and he looks very sternly at the audience and at the camera and he says, what's wrong with you people? What's, what's wrong with you people that you would even ask such a question? He goes on to say, this is what's wrong with the Christian church today. We don't know who God is. We don't know who we are. The question is, why hasn't the punishment for mankind been more severe? He says, if we have any understanding of our sin and any understanding of who God is, that's the question, isn't it? And he's right. Why why isn't our punishment more severe? Not why is there death in the world? Not why do these people die and we don't? Like they're some worse sinners than us. The question is, why are we even alive today? How, How can we even live today except by God's grace? Well, Jesus goes on to say, I tell you. So they're thinking those Galileans were worse sinners than all other Galileans. Jesus says, I tell you, no, that's not the case. This is not an issue of they're worse sinners than you. No, but unless you repent, you will all, all likewise perish. He's saying you must repent. You must repent. You're you're going to die in an awful way too, possibly. But even more, I think he's looking here, he's not saying in the exact same way, but likewise. And the word for perish here means to be completely obliterated, completely be destroyed. You will likewise be destroyed. He's hinting here at eternal punishment. Yes, there's death in this life, but then there's eternal death. And he says you must repent. You must, you have to. That's the only way that you won't perish forever. What is repentance? What does he mean by this word repentance? It's a word that comes up a lot in Scripture. We need to know what it means. Repentance, it's probably one of the most hated doctrines in the Bible. Many, many people like to study God's love. They like to study even God's holiness, even, uh, even how God does many good things and gives common grace and saves people and special saving grace. But when it comes to repentance, unbelievers hate it because it convicts them of their sin. And some professing believers hate it. They despise it. They diminish it because it teaches them that they actually have to turn from their own sinful flesh. We don't like to be reminded of that sometimes as Christians. Some Christians will even go so far as to say it's not even required for salvation. And here Jesus makes it clear. Unless you do this thing, what is it? Repent. You will all likewise perish. He's not talking about physical death. Everyone then knew everyone was going to die. Everyone today knows that we're all going to die. He's not saying you're going to die too. He's pointing to a greater truth, something of eternal punishment. And so he tells them, repent, repent. God is is so marvelous in his grace that he tells us clearly how to be saved. He tells us clearly how we can come to Christ. He did not leave us wondering How can we be saved? We feel the sin. We feel the guilt. Jesus says, repent. Repent. 
It's a fundamental part of the gospel. It's fundamental. It's, it's essential. You cannot be saved without repentance. You cannot. What is it? Well, it's not an emotion. It's not a feeling. I, I feel bad. I feel guilty. That's not what it is. It's not feeling regretful. I regret that I did such a thing because it had consequences. Not feeling sorry. Oftentimes our children will tell us they're sorry. Sorry is a sort of a, worldful, a worldly sorrow. Just feeling sorry for the consequences. Feeling sorry for what happened. It's not saying a quick promise to God. Oh God, I'll, I'll never do this again if you'll just help me out of this situation. It's not about reforming yourself either. Repentance is not, I'll make myself better. This is taught in all kinds of programs, self-help programs, addiction programs, even in prisons, that you can reform yourself, that you can, that you can suddenly make yourself less of a sinner if you just work hard enough. It's not penance like the Catholic Church teaches, where you punish yourself after you sin. So you've gone and sinned, and now if you just punish yourself enough, then that'll sort of blot out your sin. It's not just changing your mind either. It certainly starts with the mind. It certainly includes a change of mindset. But it's not simply changing your mind and then nothing else changes in your life. So what is repentance? The Bible teaches that repentance is a radical turning away from sin and turning towards Christ, towards God, towards a Savior. It is a change of mind, but that change of mind comes out in your life. It comes out in your walk. So when you turn away from sin and turn to Christ, you start to follow Him. Not yourself, not your old self, not your sinful flesh, not your sinful ways, but you follow Christ and your life begins to look like that. It's not overnight, but when a person has truly repented, their life looks different. You can see a change. You can see fruit of repentance. Well, the other aspect of salvation is faith. Of course, you have to have faith. But when Jesus tells the Jews to repent, they already understand. Well, if you turn from something, what do you turn to? Faith in God, faith in Messiah. So he doesn't even have to say it. Oftentimes in the Bible, they don't have to say faith and repentance because it's well known. It's assumed. It's included. It's the other side of the coin. So in Mark 1.15 Jesus starts preaching. And the first message he preaches is this. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. So you have repentance and faith there, but repentance comes first, he says. Repent and believe. Now it happens instantly at the same time, but he wants them to get in their mind. They need to turn from something and, and turn to someone, Christ. When Peter is preaching the gospel to Israel in Acts 3, it's the very birth of the church at Pentecost. He says, therefore, repent and return. No call to faith because it's understood. You turn away from yourself and you turn to Christ. Repent. Turn away from your sin and return so that your sins may be wiped away in order that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. And now Paul takes that gospel. He goes to the Gentiles in Acts 17. And he gives a great illustration of this when he says to the Thessalonians, that they turn to God from idols to serve a living and true God. In 1 Thessalonians 1.9, he reminds them, you turned away from idols and your sin towards the, the idols and you turn to the living and true God. That's an example of repentance. That's illustration of repentance. Everywhere you look in the Bible, everywhere you look, the good news of God's salvation is intertwined with the message of repentance. It's intertwined. You turn from sin, you turn to God, you turn to Christ. It's a complete turning away from your sin. You, you completely turn away from your sin and completely turn away from your own works to try to enter heaven, which are major sins, and you turn fully towards Christ. You turn fully towards Christ as your Savior, as your King. Jesus says, you will likewise perish if you don't repent. You will likewise perish like they died a gruesome death, you'll die a similar gruesome death forever. Likewise. Well, he gives them that situation, uh, that, that answer to that situation when Pilate, a man, has killed others. But now he turns in verse 4, and he brings up a news account. They brought him the news of the Pilate and the Galileans. 
But now he brings up something that recently happened. Verse 4. Or do you suppose that those 18 on whom the tower of Siloam fell and killed them were worse culprits than all the men who live in Jerusalem? So it's one thing for Pilate. I mean, come on. Pilate's a pagan ruler. Of course, he's going to do sinful things. Galileans, they're dirty hill, hill country folk. And, uh, you know, they're sinners. But now he takes it to Jerusalem, the, the holy city. And he says, look, this isn't even a man doing something. This is just a tower falling. Just a tower that fell on 18 people. They were just minding their own business, walking by a tower near the pool of Siloam. And it was either under construction or had, had degraded over time and needed to be repaired. And suddenly they're all crushed to death when the tower collapses. Natural disaster. It's just a natural disaster. Now they knew that natural disasters were acts of God. The Jews knew that because the Bible teaches that. That God controls all things. That all things ultimately are decreed by Him. Job teaches that as well if you read through the account of Job. So it's all throughout the Old Testament. And, and they thought, well... Dirty Galileans is one thing. And Jesus says, no, even in Jerusalem, the holy city, look what happened. Look what happened. Do you think they're worse culprits? Do you think God judged them because they're worse culprits than you? Now, your translation may have another term here, but, but culprits, if you look up the Greek word here, some translations say offenders. It's not sinners. He's not saying sinners over again. It's, of course, it is a type of sin, but he's getting a little bit nuanced here, a little more specific. The word describes someone who's in debt, who's under obligation to someone else. So they're sinners, and we're all sinners because we miss the mark. We, we don't live up to God's moral standard. But we're also culprits, all of us. We're offenders, we're culprits. We actually owe a debt to God. We owe an obligation to God. So he's describing another aspect of our sin against God. Every man, every woman has broken God's law and has not given him thanks. They've not worshipped him. Even those who've never heard of Christ, even those who've never read the Bible, have still sinned against God and they're still in debt to God because of that sin. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So you and I, because of our sin, we're under an obligation. We've not only missed the mark and missed the standard, but we have this debt we cannot pay. We have a debt owed to God. We can't pay it back. Every religion in the world attempts to pay something back to a deity that they cannot pay it fully back. So how do we get back in a right relationship with God when we sin? How, how do we clear our account? Well, most religions just say, work, work, work. Work it off. Pay for it. Punish yourself or go out and do so many good things that it'll, it'll sort of tip the balance and you'll have more good deeds than bad deeds. Isaiah 46 says that our righteous deeds, our best deeds, are like a filthy garment, are like filthy rags. If you're a sinner, if you've ever sinned, any good you try to do is like a filthy rag as far as earning God's righteousness, earning salvation. It does not work. I once had some, some Mormons come by the house, and they got to just being friendly with me and helping unload the the back of our van when we were coming back from vacation. and uh, We began to talk about the cross. And they said, oh yeah, we believe in Jesus. We believe in the cross. And I said, well, how does a person get saved? Well, they work for it and believe. And I said, what do you mean they work for it? And, and, and they went on to say, well, you have to obey the law. I said, what about the cross? What about faith? Well, that's important too, but you also have to obey the law because Jesus died on the cross so that we could obey the law and basically earn our righteousness. Well, that's incorrect. That's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that you cannot pay back the debt you owe to God. It's an infinite debt. One sin is an infinite debt because he's an infinite God. He's an eternal God. In this life, if you commit a crime, there's a certain punishment. You have to pay so much money as a fine. You have to spend uh, so much time in prison. Even a life sentence has an end to it. That's because uh, we're all finite. But God is infinite. He's eternal. We can never pay back an eternal debt that we owe. Well, soon God's going to call us to account. He's going to call me and you to account. We'll be called to an, give an account 
of our life. He did that in 1220. Remember we looked a few weeks ago back at Luke 1220. You remember what he said there? He tells the man, you fool, the man that stored up all this stuff in his barns, all this grain, all this wealth, you fool, this very night your soul is required of you. Now who will own what you have prepared? This very night, the man went to stand before God for his sin. Well, are you going to stand before God for your own sin? Because you won't stand long. Or is Jesus going to stand in your place? If you repent, then Jesus stands in your place because you've trusted in him. But if you haven't repented, then you have to stand on your own feet and that'll never do. That'll never last. You'll be sent to eternal judgment. So Jesus says again in verse 5, it's so important that he wants to say it twice. Unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. You think you're better culprits than those people who died in the natural disaster, those people in the holy city, God's holy city, and he brought a judgment upon them, and you think that you're better off than them? Unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. So important that he wants to mention it twice. And even the word here for likewise, it looks the same in English, but it's, a little, it's slightly different in Greek. It's a slightly different word, and it's even stronger. It's even stronger than the one used back in verse 3. He's pleading here with his hearers. You will likewise perish. It's more emphatic. If they don't respond to this message, they're going to perish eternally. There will be an eternal judgment. Now the Jews, the ones who had rejected Jesus at this point, were thinking that, you know, natural disasters, those people who died, they're great sinners and they should have repented. They should have repented before that tower fell on them. Maybe that wouldn't have happened. And he's looking right at them and he's saying, no, the point's not what happens to the dead because you don't know at this point. They've gone on. We know in the Bible there's heaven and hell. But he's saying they can't repent now that they're dead. The point is you and you and you should repent. That's the lesson. The lesson's not for the dead here. The lesson's for the living. The living must repent while there's still time. You're just as sinful as those 18 people who've died. Those 60 plus thousand people who've died of coronavirus. You're just as sinful as them. You're just as sinful as them. That's what the Bible says. Now maybe they've done certain sins and you've done certain sins. But God says one sin is enough to send a person to hell forever and ever. So without true, genuine repentance, you'll be judged in your sin. You'll be judged. But if we turn to Christ, then there's salvation then there's forgiveness. Then there's eternal life, not eternal judgment. He's talking here when he says perish about the complete destruction. Not, not, not annihilationism where our bodies are destroyed, but a continuous destruction that happens over and over to us as we're in hell forever and ever. Hopefully you hear this message and that doesn't describe you. Hopefully you, you don't say that we you say someone else because you trusted in Christ alone for salvation. But Jesus is saying here that perishing is awful. Perishing is being destroyed in eternal punishment every day, every second of a real physical presence. You know, the, the unbelievers will get a resurrection too. They'll get a resurrected body too. Body and soul back together so that they can experience full punishment in that state talking about hell. He's talking about a fiery furnace, an unquenchable flame of fire, brimstone. Those are real descriptions in the Bible. They're not just metaphors. They're not just figures of speech. Pits of darkness, eternal loneliness, smoke of your torment, it says, will go up forever and ever. Weeping and gnashing of teeth, destruction, suffering, banishment, torment without end. If you did not repent, you will perish there forever and ever. Hebrews 9.27 says, And as much as it is appointed for men to die once, and after this comes judgment. There's only one life. There's only one life to live. And without repentance, there's judgment. So that's the, the first point. All that to say that we must repent now because eternal death is worse than physical death in this life. Well, then he goes on to back it up. He backs it up with a, with a parable. And so the second point 
of the sermon this morning is repent now because the remaining time is short. Not only is eternal death worse than death in this life, but repent now because the remaining time is short. That's the point of the parable. So, so we might read, as Christians, we, we might read the first five verses and hear this message and, and say, that's great for unbelievers. But who's he talking to? He's talking to Jews. And what do Jews think? That they're already saved. That they were born into it. That they're God's people. They don't have to believe in the Messiah. They don't have to really turn from their sin because they're, they're sort of already saved. Like many Christians, born, in, born into Christianity. I'm an American. I'm a Texan. I came from a small town where everybody believed in Jesus. Everybody seemed to go to church. Well, he has a challenge for us here. And it's that none of us are guaranteed an indefinite amount of time to repent and be saved. And we know what's going on in our life through the fruit we produce. Through the fruit we produce. He's going to illustrate that. Look at verse 6. A man had a fig tree which had been planted in his vineyard. And he came looking for fruit on it and did not find any. Now, fruit trees were often planted in the vineyards, in the, in the, the vineyard that had grapevines growing on it for wine. And they would plant fruit trees as well. And fig trees are very productive. They produce fruit twice a year. We had, we had a fig tree when we lived in California going to seminary. We could go out in the backyard and just get some figs off the tree, unless the raccoons came up the hill and got them all first. You couldn't shoot the raccoons because it's, it's uh, California, but um, figs are very productive. So it seems very strange here that this man comes to the tree and it's not bearing any fruit. Twice a year it gives fruit, and yet when this guy comes, there is no fruit on the tree. He didn't find any. So the owner said to the vineyard keeper. He says, Behold, for three years I've come looking for fruit. That's a long time not to, not to find any fruit on the tree. For three years without finding any. Cut it down. Why does it even use up the ground? Every good fruit farmer knows that an unfruitful tree is just taking up space. There's only so much space in the vineyard is the idea here. And if the tree's not going to produce, we could put something there that will produce. And the idea you can see here is time. There's only so much time. There's only so much time we have. There's only so much time the world has. There's only so much time Jerusalem has here. And after three years, the tree will be cut up. After a certain amount of time, Jerusalem will be destroyed. After a certain amount of years, your life will end. Verse 8, he answered and said to him. So the vineyard keeper here is talking to the owner and saying, let it alone, sir, for this year too, until I dig around it and put in fertilizer. So he's the foreman of the vineyard, the vine dresser, and he's asking permission to take special care of this tree. Let me give it everything it needs to grow. Let me just make sure that there's, there's nothing wrong with it. Maybe it's malnourished. Maybe it needs a little bit more fertilizer. Maybe it needs more water. I'm going to dig around it, put in fertilizer, make sure it gets all the water it needs. So if it doesn't produce fruit, we've done everything we can to help it. There's something wrong with the tree, in other words, if it doesn't produce fruit, because we've given it everything it needs. It's talking here about the mercy of God. The mercy of God. God's going to be a little more patient with sinners. He's going to give all of us more time to repent. A little more patient. Let's wait and see. Fruit, of course, being the fruit of repentance here. In verse 9, if it bears fruit next year, fine. But if not, cut it down. Just a little more time. Just a little more time. And the, the if statement here in Greek, the if statement here, there's different kinds of if statements in Greek, different kinds of conditional statements. And this is one of those that it's not very hopeful that it's going to happen. It's not very hopeful that it will bear fruit. It's more likely that it won't bear any fruit. The tree will be cut down and it will be thrown into the fire to be burned. That's what you do with old wood. When you cut it down, you throw it into the fire to be burned up. So in the context here, the Jews are being called to repent. They claim to be God's people. They claim to be producing good fruit like repentance, righteousness, holiness. But they're not showing it. They're not showing the most basic fruit, which is to turn away from their sin and turn to Christ. That's the most basic fruit 
that anyone can show that's saved. And they're denying Jesus. They're not accepting him. They have a little more time, though. Just a little more time before their city is destroyed. We have a little more time before our life ends. How long, we don't know. Each of us is different. Some of us have a very short time, we don't know. Some of us have a very long time. But we must be producing fruit. That's how you know. Have you been saved? Are you a Christian? Well, there's really two main ways that you know. The Spirit testifies inside of you that you are, gives you assurance and confidence, and sort of drives you to do what you're supposed to do as a Christian, commune with God, pray, read the Scriptures, gather with the church. But often described in Scripture is good fruit. How do you know you're a Christian? You produce good fruit. You don't walk in the darkness. You walk in the light because God is in the light. John, uh, I'm sorry, Luke 3, 9. John the Baptist had been warning the Jews about this before Jesus starts his ministry. John the Baptist said, the axe is already laid at the root of the trees. So every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. The axe is right there. The time is short. The axe is about to cut the tree and throw it into the fire, he says. It's almost time. Repent. Repent, he says. Repent. After the ministry of Jesus is complete and the apostles take the gospel to Israel, to the Gentiles, God's going to come and cut down all the unfruitful trees in Jerusalem. He's going to come down, come and, and, and judge them. And we know what happened then. We know what happened in 70 AD. Everything was destroyed. You can read how awful the accounts are of that judgment. Jerusalem was completely destroyed. And Jews, if they didn't believe in Christ, and they were killed in that destruction, then they went to a place of eternal fire, eternal punishment. But that's the application for them. What about us today? What about us today? Because most of us aren't Jews, most of us, uh, certainly none of us lived in 70 AD. What's the application for us today? Well, there's a lot of professing Christians maybe even amongst us in the church. There's, there's professing Christians that say they're Christians, but they have no fruit. No fruit. No fruit of repentance. No good fruit showing that they're obeying Christ, that they love the Lord, that they're following His commands. Jesus said you'll know them by their fruit. You know false teachers by their bad fruit. You know good teachers by their good fruit. A good tree will bear good fruit. A bad tree will bear bad fruit. That's the idea that he's getting across here. In churches today, there are a lot of professing Christians that are bearing no fruit or it's bad fruit. And Jesus says a little while longer. They have a little while longer. And they're given so much. They're given the word if they're, they claim to be a Christian and they're going to church. They're given the word. They're giving preaching. They're, they're, they're in prayers with other believers. Bible studies, sermons, books. So many different things. Study Bibles, commentaries. That's the fertilizer. There's a lot of fertilizer and water that goes in. Still no fruit. Christ is going to come back. The tree will be cut down. It will be thrown into the fire. Now, some people will object here. When it comes to fruit, some people will object. And often the objection sounds like this. Well, how do you know, pastor? I mean, it's the heart that matters. It's what's in the heart that matters. Don't be so hard on unfruitful Christians. I kind of call this the Disney theology. It's the Disney theology. Listen to your heart. It was in a lot of movies when I was younger. and It's still there today, but it's most prominent today, I think, in Disney movies. Listen to your heart. Your heart is always right. Listen to your heart. It will lead you. It's your heart that matters. Nothing in your life and what you do really matters except for your heart is what matters. If you have a good heart, that's what matters. That's, that's what being a Christian is. It's being nice and having a good heart towards others. Well, of course, every Christian should have a good heart towards others. Uh, every Christian should have a heart that believes. But the world says people can live like the world. They can sin. But as long as in their heart they say they're a Christian and they believe, then that makes them a Christian. And I would say have a look at the Bible. Where do you see that? You see the opposite. You see Jesus warning people like that. They say, in my heart, I'm saved, but they have no fruit. And he's warning them. He's warning them. He's not saying here in this parable, you know, this tree is a really good tree. 
It's a really good tree. After all, it's, it's already planted in my vineyard, so it must be good. I mean, it's there. You know, it must be a good tree. The owner of the vineyard says, look, I'll leave it there. It's a good tree. After all, it did make a decision when it was younger to be a fruitful tree, so I'll just keep waiting. Eventually, maybe, eventually, with enough time, it will produce fruit because it's the decision that counts. It's the heart that matters. Now, that's silliness. That's not in Scripture. I know our world teaches that, but that's not in Scripture. What's in Scripture is good tree produces good fruit. Now, Jesus is the only one that makes us a good tree. We don't make ourselves a good tree, but a good tree produces good fruit. Bad tree, bad fruit. It's silliness to say that a person can change their heart or have a changed heart even by God and not show any fruit ever in the Christian life, especially the fruit of repentance. The Bible could not be more clear. We must repent. The time is now. We will perish if we don't repent. And then we need to show a life that has fruit of repentance in it. When you've repented, that will produce fruit. When you've come to Christ, that will produce good fruit. Who wants to perish? Who wants to be eternally punished, eternally destroyed forever and ever? God's given us just a little more time, like that tree, one more year. We'll give it all that the tree needs to grow, and we'll see. God gives us a little more time. He's patient with the world right now. There will be an end to that. Either you'll die, or Christ will come back. There'll be an end. But he says in 2 Peter 3, 9, the Lord is not slow about his promise. He's speaking there to the church. He's talking about people in the church in 2 Peter. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, the church. You that has some of unbelievers here in the church. He's patient towards you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. Ezekiel 18, 32, For I have no pleasure in the death of anyone who dies, declares the Lord God. Therefore, repent and live. God doesn't enjoy seeing people die in their sin. Repent and live. And Jesus says, unless you are converted and become like children, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. You must be converted. You must be changed. That's what converted means. You must be changed from one thing to another. Repentance and faith is the means by which we are changed. Christ changes us, but our action in it is repentance and faith. So Jesus gives one simple command. One simple command. If you don't turn from your sin and turn to God's Messiah, who's the only Savior of the world, you're going to die. And not just die, but have eternal punishment. That's God's message for the world in the coronavirus That's the one clear message. I mean, there are many things that God can be teaching us personally in our lives. There are many things God can be teaching our nation and the world. Humility. We can make a long list. But we're clear about this. When natural disasters come, the one clear message, repent. 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 Turn to Christ. Turn to Christ. He himself, the Bible says, Christ himself bore our sins. He bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds you have been healed, for we are continually straying like sheep. But now if you repent, he's saying, you will have returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. God God made Christ who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that he would die in the place for our sins. And that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Christ gives us his righteousness and he takes our sin away from us. We're forgiven and we get his righteousness. Why why not turn to Christ and get that? Why not give up all that you have and all, all that you think that will give you something good and turn to Christ? Jesus says, I've not come to call the righteous, the self-righteous. He didn't come to save the people who already think they're righteous. He came to call sinners to repentance. But the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. He's seeking and saving. We are not the seekers. We are not the seeker church. He's the seeker and he's coming to save the lost. He says there'll be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents. More joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. 
They don't think they need repentance. They're self-righteous. But one person who repents, there is more joy in heaven over that one than the 99. The only way is through Christ. The message that we all need to hear, whether a believer or an unbeliever, as we should repent or we will likewise perish. God's grace is wonderful. God's grace is greater than all of our sin. God's grace is what saves. God, through His grace, will bring us to Christ. He will bring us to have eternal life if we turn to Him, if we turn away from our sins. Don't listen to this message today and perish. There's no need for it. God gave us warnings in the Bible, and He's making a warning right now around the whole world, a clear message. Repent, or you will likewise perish. Lord, we do come before you this morning asking indeed you would give us, grant us repentance. If we're already saved, help us to remember what you've done in our lives. We are indeed sinners saved by your grace. I pray, Lord, for those who've not turned to you. Probably a lot of those who might listen to this message in the future or even might be listening today who think they're saved, who think they can, they can earn something, who think they're good, outweighs their bad. Lord, shake them up. Wake up their heart to realize that they're indeed sinners and they need to repent. There's only a little time left. A little time. We don't know the end. We must use it wisely. We must repent and turn now. We pray that you would grant that to anyone hearing this message. And we pray that you would continue to remind the church that this is the gospel. Repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, the only one who can save us. Let us keep that gospel in our minds right now. It's what the world needs to hear. It's what the world needs to hear. So I pray that you would make us servants of yours. Help us carry that message to the world. In Jesus' name, amen.